Join us in a world where you're listening to Ballistic Radio. Sit back as we discuss hard-won lessons, the best and brightest that the personal defense and competition shooting industry has to offer. Let us help you help yourself, no matter where you are in your personal path. Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They pay for this, so you don't have to. Now here's your host, John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. I'm your host, John Johnston. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at BallisticRadio.com. Get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, other stuff at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. And if you're on Instagram, at BallisticJ will show you my... uh, personal exploits and adventures and gym selfies and food stuff. And I don't even know. Joe's just looking at me. Well, what's that face, Joe? I I do enjoy the gym selfie every now and then. I mean, you know, you were a a huge inspiration to me as far as starting on that journey. Oh, well, thank you. No, thank you. You're a rock. Yeah. I mean, wait, what was that? You're a rock. Oh, I heard something else. I'm like, I'm not. Oh, anyway. Hey, guess what? Come on, John. <laughs> this segment also brought to you by Lucky Gunner and Federal Premium Ammunition. Whether there was a firefight or you do, in fact, want to worry about that little guy, you need more ammo. And when it's time to restock, you can't beat Federal Premium Ammunition at LuckyGunner.com. With a shipping department that's always moving at 88 miles per hour, if I order a case of American Eagle from Lucky Gunner on a Thursday, it's at my doorstep ready to shoot before the weekend starts. Head to LuckyGunner.com today to check out their in-stock lineup of Federal Premium Ammunition. And remember, unless you're on fire or drowning or, I don't know, just something I've not thought of yet. I liked my leg day analogy last last episode. Like you've skipped too many leg days and now you are, anyway, whatever, I'm going to stop. You can never really have too much ammo. That just went nowhere. Uh, joining us today is Michael Brown. Mike, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, sir? Oh, I can't complain. Please, please don't, sir. That's going to weird me out because <laughs> that's not my dad. That's my grandfather. And I hear you. I, I deal with high school kids all day, so uh, I get used to, uh, you know, I, I try to get them in the habit of calling everyone sir, so yeah, I, I tend to do it myself. I know. Um, if, if you cannot help yourself, that is fine. And what's funny is I almost served you, and then it's like, wait, doctor, doctor, doctor. Um <laughs> So, yeah, man, who are you, and what would you like to tell people about yourself? And then we'll hop into today's show. All righty. Uh, my name is Mike Brown. I am a, uh, for, a retired Tulsa police officer. Uh, I worked there for uh, just shy of 22 years. I served in a, a variety of assignments there uh, as a, a supervisor, detective. Uh, I was on the SWAT team. I was a firearms instructor, defensive tactics instructor served in internal affairs briefly, and uh, my final assignment there prior to uh, moving into teaching full-time was uh, I was the supervisor of the Crimes Against Children Unit. And uh, immediately after that, I moved uh, into teaching. I teach uh, criminal justice at the high school level at uh, Tulsa Tech here in Tulsa. And uh, my students are juniors and seniors in high school who have aspirations to be police officers. And Functionally, what I do is I run them through a modified police academy 
uh, and they receive a couple of state certifications to allow them to uh, uh, perform a certain number of jobs when they graduate. But the vast majority of my kids are uh, kids who want to go to college and eventually be police officers. That's kind of cool, dude. Um, that is kind of cool. So we, when, when I asked you to come on the show, there was uh, – I, I made a joke about what we were going to talk about. Maybe we'll get into that. Maybe we won't. I don't know. But <laughs> there were a couple of things that I thought were sort of intriguing to me. Um, as far as possible topics or things that you felt uh, particularly capable of speaking on. And I kind of wanted to get into two of them, right? Uh, so you mentioned coaching for performance, and you also m- mentioned mental preparation. And I think where you thought I was going to go with that was from the student perspective. But where I'd like mm-hmm. to go uh, with that is from the coach's perspective what are some of the mental preparations and what are some of the important things that you need to keep in mind um if you're going to be a good coach well one of the uh the things that you have to consider when we talk about mental preparation that is an enormous area of subject matter sure uh and each one and when we talk about mental preparation for uh, a particular task we really have to address what it is we're trying to accomplish. So if we're talking about mental preparation for, say, a competition, um, you know, that's, that's one area. If we're talking about mental preparation for a confrontation, that's another. Uh, if we're talking about uh, focus, you know, that's one area. So really, it's very, it's very dependent uh, on what it is you're trying to accomplish. Where I've spent most of my time uh, – preparing for, simply because it's so much more frequent than, uh, than any others, is mental preparation for competition. Now, as of late, because of my, uh, my current assignment, my students compete uh, in a variety of areas. Uh, most recently, we, uh, uh, we participated in the Oklahoma Physical Fitness Challenge, where we compete against uh, schools and tech centers from all over the state um, in uh, various law enforcement-based uh, physical fitness challenges. And my students are, are high school students, uh, you know, juniors and seniors in high school. But a lot of these students they're competing against uh, are kids, uh, you know, sometimes they're high school, other high school students, but a lot of them are uh, freshmen, sophomores in college. So there's a tremendous uh, physical disparity between them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I needed to focus on with them uh, during this competition was that they needed to, uh, you know, get rid of the idea that simply because these students uh, that they were going to be competing against were older, more physically mature, uh, that sort of thing. So I kind of took the, the, you know, the Herb Brooks perspective on this. You know, Herb Brooks, the former uh, uh, Olympic hockey coach of the uh, 1980 Olympic uh, U.S. gold medal winning team, and had to try to get them to understand that uh, it didn't really matter what everyone else could do on a regular basis, that the only thing that mattered that, and this, for this competition is what we could do then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a great deal of time ignoring the issue of competition leading up to, you know, during their, their physical preparation phase. So we didn't really worry a great deal about what, uh, you know, hey, if you could do, you know, this many push-ups, 
in competition you can win or if you can do this many pull-ups or if you can run the mile and a half this fast or if we do that. What I focused on was trying to make the uh, what they practiced as similar to the competition as possible, but it was very familiar. So we didn't talk so much about competition. We tried to get them to simply uh, play their, you know, play their game, for lack of a better term, in the same way that they would uh, any other day when we trained. And as it turned out, uh, our our team, you know, our, our high school kids, won that competition uh, with setting with a record-setting number of points. And in fact, we scored more points total than the uh, second and third place teams combined. <laughs> So they were they were very very ready for that competition beyond just the physical, but it was the the primary issue was that they didn't see the competition as any different than any other day of training, because we didn't spend a great deal of time saying hey if you don't win this this is going to happen if you don't win this we didn't focus on results we focused on making the training as similar as possible to what they were going to encounter so that when they go and and uh, uh, compete, it's just another day of training. You know, something they've done plenty of times before, and then, you know, it reduces the amount of anxiety they deal with in terms of performance, and they can perform at their optimal levels. So would you say that the number one goal of any coach or really any instructor in any discipline is removing the novel stimuli for the student so that they are not um, they are not focused on oh, man, this is happening, or oh, man, this is weird. It's like, oh, right. I, I know how to do this. Do you, do you think that would be important? That's, that's a fair statement. That's definitely one of the, the most important things. You know, removing barriers to performance is, is the, the coach's role. Uh, you know, because the coach can't do much once, you know, an athlete or competitor or whomever, you know, steps out onto the, uh, you know, into the competition. What they have to do is try to limit the number of things that can alter the, uh, you know, the optimal performance rather than necessarily, uh, you know, trying to bring them to a peak. Does that make sense? Yeah. So something, um, something that I have focused my efforts on in my students, uh, and this, this is just like, one, I, I don't mean to suggest that um, this is unique to me because it's certainly not. And I don't mean to suggest that I'm anything special or, or anything not special. I, I think there are plenty of people that do this. But, like, from my own personal standpoint, the thing that I have tried to focus on in my students is, as opposed to seeing how much higher I can get their top end to be, I'm much more interested in, in picking the bottom end of their performance up as, uh, as far as I can so that there is less of a gap between a bad day and a good day for them, you know? Right. Eliminate the train wreck. Yeah. Rather than necessarily trying to, uh, you know, create a one-time stellar performance. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was a that was an area that I, I spent a, when I was when I was shooting a competition uh, in the late uh, late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, I was spending a lot of time competing in IDPA, mm-hmm. uh, IDPA, and a little bit in USPSA. Uh, and at one point, um, I was. Uh, I think in probably that was probably 2002 or 2003 IDPA nationals. I finished in the the top five among some really good shooters, you know, mm-hmm. guys like Ernest Langdon, Dave Savigny, uh, guys like that. And uh, what, if, if you looked at my performance, you'd see a, you know, a, a Dave Savigny who 
I never even came close to in any individual stage, except for the ones where, uh, you know, his performance wasn't at its peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I focused on most of the time was rather than trying to be the absolute fastest or, uh, or anything uh, in, in any particular stage, I tried to make sure I didn't make and do anything colossally wrong. And what that resulted in was in that entire match, that one, uh, one particular year that I was, uh, you know, real high, I think I dropped a grand total of about seven points mm-hmm. on the, the 15 stages that there were. And uh, the, I don't think there were any stages that I won, but I was very rarely out of the top five right. on any group of stages. And so most of the time when I'm, I'm trying to perform at my best, I'm not trying to necessarily, uh, you know, have a day where I, where, oh man, this just, we're hitting on all cylinders. I try to make it so that I'm very rarely missing a step. Well, and that makes a lot of sense because, um, and we got to go to break here in a second, but uh, it it brings to mind something that I heard in a um, a Chase Jenkins class uh, of, of talent defense, formerly and now a centrifuge training, but. Um, he observed that the person that makes the least amount of mistakes over the uh, shortest amount of time generally wins whatever that happens to be. And I found that to be very true. You know, I think that's yeah, I think it's a very, very, uh, very accurate statement. Yeah, uh, I think that rather than necessarily performing at, you know, at, at highest peak levels, making the fewest mistakes seems to be a much more consistent strategy for uh, for success in a whole variety of endeavors, not just shooting. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so we're talking, uh, we're talking with Mike Brown right now. You're listening to ballistic radio. Welcome back to ballistic radio brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and federal premium ammunition. Remember they paid for this so that you don't have to. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977, a legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories as well as the EDCX9, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match-grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability with modern service pistol capacity and reliability at www.wilsoncombat.com. Um so and and we were talking before the uh before the break about you know removing barriers to performance and 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 the the things that tend to garner success and and that seems to be consistent performance and you know so i i you you weren't able to attend this year's tactical conference right that's correct yeah so it was funny because that was a surprising thing because there were a lot of um, there were a lot of crowd fr- favorites going into the man on man shoot off right so that that happens on the 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 third day of the conference and the interesting thing about that is at least in the crowd that I run in none of the fan favorites were in the shoot off because they didn't make it through the elimination stages um, mm-hmm. you know and the the gentleman that won who is an incredible shooter um, and uh, uh, just a great, great, great guy, um, simply made the fewest amount of mistakes over the, uh, over the entire course of the weekend. And what's funny is in reviewing the, the man-on-man video specifically, he only missed twice that I was able to see um, out of every single one. 
you know, on a uh, a sixteen man um, elimination, and that's that's what it takes. You know, it, it's not necessarily um, sprints, but just consistent, uh, good mile times. You know. Right. Consistency of performance is, is a pretty good barometer for how successful somebody is going to be. So and you sort of you mentioned this, but um, in the self-defense game or the self-defense world, um, how do we how do we do that? You know, what what should the instructors be focusing on to try and remove uh, the novelty of the situation? And and I'm you know, a lot of people are going to um try and make this, you know, well, you need to learn how to shoot better, but it's not necessarily all about that. And, right. In my opinion, right. but what about yours? Well, I think that, you know, again, one of the, the things I talked about a little earlier was trying to make the playing field familiar. And uh, one of the things that I think that uh, has become a little bit more, uh, a little bit more popular in the last decade or so is trying to make the, uh, the self-defense scenario a little bit more familiar. Now, one of the things that, uh, that I recall very specifically, um, in 1999, I was, I was involved in a shooting, and uh, I w- was able to, uh, you know, a- after it was all over uh, and, you know, investigation was done and everything, I was able to, to kind of recreate uh, the situation as much as I could. And uh, the particular set of circumstances that uh, I was, I was, I was, was uh, dealt in that particular uh, incident was very, very similar to what I had been preparing for. Now, that's not to say that what I had been preparing for was the right answer. It just so happened to be in this particular circumstance. So, what I think that we need to be looking at as, uh, as instructors, and it's the way I, I prepare my students, is I try to make them as familiar with, as, with, as possible with the things that are most common in uh, self-defense incidents. So if we're talking about, uh, you know, hand-to-hand, uh, I make them very familiar with being sucker-punched. Right. Uh, if we're talking about, uh, you know, deal, you know uh, managing an unknown contact, I make them very, very familiar with what, uh, in the context of what I'm teaching them, uh, what it looks like when suspects make furtive movements. Sure. So that none of those things are unfamiliar to them when uh, they're forced to actually do it. Now, my students uh, won't have to deal with that for a number of years, but we do a great deal of force-on-force testing. And in those type of scenarios, the, the scenarios where uh, essentially, uh, you know, a student can can draw into a familiar practice or a familiar incident to, to deal with an unknown future situation, they do extremely well. Uh, when they are unable to draw on a past scenario, then then it really matters on how, you know, how good they are on their feet and uh, how, uh, how good their skills are. Uh, their skills can be somewhat subpar. They may not, they don't have to be great. But if they're familiar and they're able to draw on prior experience to deal with a future scenario, then they usually do pretty well. Well, and it seems like, too, that and uh, I interviewed William April. uh, It'll be three weeks ago now by the time this one airs. 
And something he was talking about is like shock threshold and getting people to raise their shock threshold so that it requires more for them to uh, become overwhelmed with uh, information and stuff like that. And it's kind of interesting, you know, and I've seen this. And I'm not trying to uh, make it seem like I've got a ton of experience doing shoot house stuff, but I've done a little bit. And, you know, my personal experience versus the first class I went to versus the fourth or fifth, and then especially observing other people that are at the beginning of that, how much information they're able to process when it's all brand new versus how much they can process when it's something they're comfortable with. And that can provide a distinct advantage, yeah? Correct. If, you know, for somebody that's, that's had that experience before, their speed of processing is much, much higher than a person who is uh, who is brand new. For instance, as, a, as an example, one of the things that we did uh, just recently was uh, we did a, a TC3 scenario, a tactical combat casualty care scenario, just recently with my students. And the I have a group of, like I said, I have juniors and seniors. And because of that, I get some students who I have for two years. Mm-hmm. And the students that I've had for two years, the scenario was very different. Uh, this year as opposed to last year. But the, the students who had something to draw on, the idea that, okay, we got a, uh, uh, a situation that we have, to, uh, we have to quell before we can start rendering medical aid, we've got witnesses here we have to corral before we can start doing anything else, those students who had done it before, uh, their ability to process what was most important, uh, neutralize the suspect first, uh, maintain the witnesses and the security of the scene, and then eventually utilize contact and cover to administer medical care. Those kids, per, uh, you know, process that that scenario much much faster than the students who came and did it the first time. A lot of times, what happens is the students sort of revert to their most recent thing they've trained in. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, because of this necessity of the way a school year works, uh, the first thing that I con- I cover with students is contact and cover, and I try to reinforce that throughout the year. Well, immediately prior to this scenario, we'd obviously worked on uh, combat casualty care. So students were learning to apply tourniquets, quick clot, uh, chest seals, things like that. And uh, because of that, uh, I think a number of my newer students walked into the scenario, ignored the threat that was still going on. In a particular scenario we had, there was an armed subject who needed to be be dealt with first uh, before applying medical care. Some of the students just ran right by the armed subject, pull up tourniquets, you know, put on a great tourniquet, uh, despite the fact that there's a guy pointing a gun at you. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so uh, so they missed, you know, they, they would miss certain things because their most recent experience happened to be that, you know, you know, putting on tourniquets, putting on chest seals. They completely ignored the contacts and cover and uh, all the other types of training that we had been previously doing just because that was their most recent experience. Now, uh, the upshot of that is that, you know, I'm confident that those first-year students who didn't do that well this year will do fine next year. Or if I had to run this scenario again uh, next week, they would have some some pretty good reference points for how to, you know, how to process it better. Uh, But the, you know, just having done it once before, uh, I saw an immediate improvement in the other students, despite the, the fact that the scenario was very, very different than it was the previous year. 
Well, and we got to go to break, but that's something that really can't be overstated. It's, you know, you say something like, well, they ran right past an armed uh, subject, but I guarantee that they will never, ever do that again. Um, right. And that, you know, that emotional bookmark um, is, is something that's incredibly useful. But uh, we're talking with uh, Mike Brown right now. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. They paid for this, so you don't have to. You're not stealing, which is good. Thanks, Lucky Gunner and Federal. This segment brought to you by BigTexOutdoors.com. BigTexOutdoors.com is the best place for you to find all your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the lumens from Surefire at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room and now you can't see so good and need an RMR in your pistol? BigTexOutdoors.com has those. Glock accessories? Yes! Fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, BigTexOutdoors.com has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike. And you'll like Ike, too. Visit BigTexOutdoors.com today. And find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So before the break, we were talking about um, recency of training and um, I guess how even having seen a similar situation once can dramatically, dramatically, dramatically decrease your um, – <laughs> Uh, can increase your performance. My phone started ringing. I'm like, crap, this hasn't happened in a while. Um, so, and usually I'm better at that. That was actually my watch ringing. Silly watches. So, um, and, and people don't really realize how, like, just how important that can be, though, yeah? Uh, yeah, so I, I think that there's, there's a, uh, in the training industry, we place a lot of value on the, uh, the educational portion of training, uh, the portion where we're being told, uh, you know, these are the things you need to know. These are the, um, you know, these are the, the processes that you'll go through. This is the stuff. And, and that's all very, very valuable. Um, you know, as a teacher, I, I spend a certain amount of time on that. But one of the things that, uh, that I, I've noticed uh, over both instructing the law enforcement field now teaching, you know, much younger uh, much younger students, is that the experiential learning is much more valuable than uh, essentially the lecture or the classroom learning. Sure. Uh, I know we can't do without that. Uh, I recognize that's a, that's a, that's a piece of, of what's important in the process. Uh, but that experiential learning is, as has been for, in my experience, far more effective than simply telling somebody what they will see, do, experience, uh, and so forth. Well, and that seems it's, you know, because it doesn't have any salience to them. If You know, it's it's very simple for me to say something like, yeah, you put the fist helmet on and then you're going to think you can't breathe. And just remember, if you can yell, I can't mm-hmm. breathe. You can, in fact, breathe. I recently said that right. to a good friend of mine, uh, Professor Yamane from Wake Forest, who was, um, you know, went and took ECQC. And He's like, hey, do you have any advice for me? And I'm like, well, one, wear a beanie for Friday. And he's like, why? And I'm like, just do what I tell you, David. Um, <laughs> you'll you'll thank me. Uh, two, remember, if you can shout, I can't breathe, you can, in fact, breathe. And both of those right. uh, ended up being salient to him. But me simply telling him so 
didn't explain why. And right. And and right. there's something to that. And then I guess what I'd be curious about is um, you know, when we start talking about like levels of competency, right? And you know, subconscious competence and and unconscious competence, whatever you want to define it as. Um, you can't really get that outside of doing it, right? That's that's my opinion. I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, obviously, I, I I've not experienced enough to to give a definitive opinion on something like that. But in my experience, it's very very hard to to translate something that you've simply been told or heard or instructed on. Uh, and then uh, manage to create effective performance from it without ever having at least simulated it to some degree. Right. Um, now, the degree to which the simulation must be realistic varies based on the skill. Um, now, you take your your uh, your friend that you talked about there earlier, uh, who you know you said, hey, uh, if you can if you can talk, you can breathe. That's a visceral experience. Yes, it is. That's something that you you definitely. You can be told that, but until you feel like I can't breathe despite the fact that I can talk, you don't really understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't really understand the, the, the panic of that. It's kind of like drowning. You know, yep. Nobody really knows what drowning is until you get waterboarded, right. um, you know, even though you're not really going to drown. Yeah. Uh, but the experience is visceral enough that, uh, you know, that somebody is, it, it, it's, you know, it imprints itself greatly on you. Now, uh, that can work both positively and negatively. Uh, you know, if we uh, if we simply you know deal a student a series of negative experiences in that way, uh, it takes a very unique student to succeed to, despite those. So while I am not a fan of necessarily making uh, everything a win for a student in training, uh, I do think that uh, we have to imprint on them things that are going to be that are going to be valuable for them in the future that, uh, you know, simply overwhelming a student isn't exactly the answer either. No. And so, and that seems to be a, a, a difficult dance for some people because I have been present. Right. Um, so I, I've, I have done uh, a little bit of security contracting work. And for Ohio, the class that you take to, um, to carry a gun uh, as a, you know, as a contra- security contractor – is the same class that, um, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of security contracting you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're doing the, the, you know, facility security where they've got millions of dollars of stuff and you're making pretty good money. And it doesn't matter if you're essentially doing an arm detail at a, uh, you know, a check cashing place. Same class. Right. And this was a 20-hour state-mandated class, um, and I uh, – viscerally disagreed with how the instructor was introducing stress to individuals that had never held a gun before, mm-hmm. you, you know, and that's, right. and that seems right. to be a thing where I, I completely agree with what he was trying to do, just how he was going about doing it did not agree with. Uh, and that's yeah, not very, it's not very effective. No, it seems to be a very delicate dance where, um, you know, something like ECQC I've yet to meet anybody who has had their first ECQCBA positive individual experience as things are happening, um, but it somehow manages to be a positive overall experience. 
Um, well, yeah, you, what you're, what you're, you're hitting on something that I think that's been been pivotal in my training. Craig Douglas is a you know is a, is a significant mentor of mine. Sure. Um, and uh, he uh, his class was was instrumental in me developing a number of areas that uh, that I'm much more competent in now. And, uh, you know, led me most importantly to others that, uh, you know, that, that proved to be important. But uh, one of the things that Craig is most expert in uh, is in providing an individual student with the customized experience that they need. Yep. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, he is, uh, you know, he's going and saying, okay, well, I'm going to do this, this, and this for this student. But he has really, because of the experience that a number has had teaching, I mean, he taught that class now, uh, you know, just hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. And uh, the material is very different. I, I took the very first ECQC class in Dallas, um, you know, years and years ago. I guess over, what was that? Yeah, so well over a decade ago. Yeah. And the class then uh, is very different than it is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that's most relevant, most important about the class today compared to where it was, is that the student's experience is very, very different Mm -hmm. uh, than it was uh, a decade ago. You know, Craig is just so good at recognizing, you know, what is, you know, what level of, of stress a student needs to achieve the desired result. Now, the desired result isn't always a student coming out there and, you know, uh, beating the other student or anything like that. It's not, it's not so much that. It's what can the student, uh, you know, what will drive the student to, to move on to further training. Yeah. Now, overwhelming a student, you know, in theory, we could look, look at that and say, well, if a student gets overwhelmed and realizes they suck, uh, well, surely they'll take up other training. And that's not necessarily so. No. Um, what a student needs to recognize is that they've got some areas that, that need work, you know, where they have some deficiencies and that there are opportunities to improve and work upon work on those. And if the experience is totally negative, it's unlikely the student will want to put themselves in that situation again. You know, when a student's ego is so attached to their success or failure in a particular task, then their uh, further development, which is really the goal of, of any particular training, because nobody can take ECQC and then say, yep, I'm ready, yeah. ready to handle everything. You know, the, the real benefit of ECQC is that it audits your uh, strengths and weaknesses and gives you some honest feedback on what you can and, and can't do. And most importantly, what you can, uh, you, you know, what you, where you need to go later, you know, the paths you need to follow. There was a you know a, a meme I remember years a few years ago that someone posted somewhere in one of the, the Facebook groups I belong to, where they said, "Hey, this is the they had a meme that said that ECQC I just took or I just took the ECQC starter pack and it was a set of boxing gloves and a jujitsu gi and a set of weights <laughs> uh, and a treadmill." Yeah, and that's the real goal of ECQC is to get everybody to understand that. If you really want to be prepared, this is not a weekend endeavor. You know, this is a lifelong endeavor. You know that you can you can make yourself you know reasonably formidable in a short period of time. But if you really want to be a student of the craft, 
then it requires further commitment, uh, further ongoing commitment in a whole variety of areas. Well, and yeah, so I, I've got a couple things to say about that, but we need to go to break. So I will I will respond in just a second. Uh, right now, we're talking with Mike Brown. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by LuckyGunner.com and Federal Premium Ammunition. Remember, they paid for this so that you don't have to. They're cool like that. Uh, anyway, we're talking with Mike Brown, and, you know, you were you were sort of discussing how you can get reasonably formidable in a short period of time, but if you're really going to get into this, this is a lifelong thing. And I guess my question would be, as an instructor, and then maybe even as a student or just wherever, um, where do we go, hey, you know what? Um, I understand your resources, and I understand where you're placing importance and value in your life, and what you're doing is not what I choose to do, but it's good that you're doing something. And where do we go, okay, good for you, and where do we go, hey, I think you can do better, like, how do you make the determination between encouraging someone to do more work and acknowledging that here is a good for them end state? You know what I mean? Right. That's. I mean, that's a that's a very interesting question. Let, let me let me start it from a from a perspective as a student. Um, might be easier. Might be easier. Might, might flow us into how we handle it as an instructor. Um, you know, right now, in terms of uh, you know, in terms of the the skill sets that I you know that I, I regard as important, um, I'm one of those kind of people that I am just absolutely unsatisfied unless I am optimal in all the areas. Sure. Um, you know, I I spent a, a a considerable amount of time over uh, over my career trying to get good uh, in, in a number of areas. Now, the, but the, so what I did at some point identify is that my strength isn't so much that I'm good at any of those things, but rather that I'm honest about my weaknesses. I think one of the, the problems that a lot of male students have, which makes, means why female students tend to, be, to do so much better in these type of classes, is that males are not always honest with themselves about what they do badly. And I've never had no, that No, no. Um, yeah. yeah, believe it or not, believe it or not. I've, I've, not, I've, I've never really had that issue. Um, there are a whole host of areas that I felt like uh, I, I needed improvement in. Yeah. And uh, I was able to, you know, identify, well, I need this, so this is whom I'm going to go to to get that. Right. And uh, over time, you know, I managed to bring, you know, most of those areas up to a certain level of competency. Um, you know, for instance, one of the areas as of late, and this is a, a recent development for me, was that I was just not honest with myself about my ability to apply either self-care, self-medical care, or care to another person. Mm -hmm. um, I was just, you know, I had done training in that area. But I was not honest with myself about the idea that, hey, I can, you know, 
I can put a tourniquet on, you know, in the appropriate amount of time. I know the difference between, uh, you know, when to, uh, you know, when to uh, to move a subject and when not to. All the, you know, all the things that you need to do in TC3. And so I, I just simply decided, I said, hey, I, I need to throw myself into this a bit. And so I, uh, you know, I went to, fortunately, I have a, a guy that I used to work with who does, uh, who created the, the, you know, our state certification uh, in TC3 and uh, teaches, you know, the same program is taught to the, taught in the military and uh, taught you know, a lot of places uh, now around the world in both the public and the private sector. And just simply threw myself into, into training on that. And because of that, I'm a lot more confident than I was last year. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but the but the where that really all starts is recognizing that you do have some deficiency, uh, and where we were, I was talking about a little earlier with uh, with Craig Douglas is that one of the things that ECQC does is it, it tends to point out deficiencies really well. Now, if a student has an experience that tells them, "Yeah, I got some areas I got to work on," then you know, hey, we succeeded. You know, if a student just has an abject failure. Uh, and just everything collapses around them, they, they may never want to address these areas again. Right. So now as, a, as an instructor, you know, to kind of try to flow into your original question, uh, our job is to try to give a student an experience that will uh, put them on a path for greater knowledge. So rather than necessarily telling a student, uh, hey, you need to work on this, you need to work on this, you need to work on this, we create an experience that allows them to say, man, I need to lose my gut mm-hmm. or man, I'm weak or, you know, I can't hit a two inch dot at three yards uh, in under two seconds. I need to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so they, you know, hopefully that student starts to, you know, kind of stealth assess what they need because really there's no you know there's no standard that says that if you do this if you become a you know a black belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu or you become a a grandmaster uspsa shooter or uh you know or any number of other you know artificial standards there's no you know there's no standard that says you'll be okay you know in any particular scenario so really it isn't a matter of necessarily going and saying Hey, you know, you know, if you achieve the standard, it'll be okay. It's getting students to realize that these are the important components of personal protection, and make it now important enough to them that they will go forward and attempt to, uh, you know, attempt to improve themselves in each of those areas. Well, and so it's 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 funny we're we're talking about ECQC so much, but like. Uh, people refer to that as Fight Club, and I've heard Craig referred to as, right. as as Tyler before. Um, right. You know, and for a lot of people, it becomes a transcendent experience, and you know that's um, that's incredibly useful. And I guess my because <clears throat> we're going to run up towards the end of the show in a couple of minutes, and I want to think about what a good, useful question would be for instructors. Um. Where does someone go to develop the ability to read the students in a meaningful way? Is that something you either have or don't have, or is that just um, spending time with instructors that are good at that and seeing how they do it? What's what's the question there? 
or what's the answer there? Well, I can I, I can I can tell you how it's been for me, and uh, because in most areas I am you know I'm quite average. I think that we can uh, you know we can say that it's probably safe for most other people as well. I don't really believe in the idea of either you have it or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that almost every skill can be cultivated. And, you know, the ability to determine what we need to, uh, you know, do to motivate a student, that can be cultivated as well. Now, what's worked for me uh, is the, the very first thing, uh, and this is, this is important, is that an instructor has to realize that their own performance is only valuable if it improves the student's performance. In other words, uh, how good we are is really only important if it helps the student get better. Now, uh, if a, an instructor isn't familiar with the material, like, you know, can't do what he's asking the students to do, well, then it's going to be pretty obvious why that's, you know, why that's not going to be helpful to the student's performance. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, it isn't ter- there, are, there are a number of people who teach fields, um, you know, that aren't as good as a number of performers in those fields. Right. So there's a so there's certainly a balance between those two. So you know, realizing that you know that instructor has to kind of separate their own performance from the student's performance is first. Uh, that's a that's a big deal. Uh, next, uh, in terms of uh, you know trying to draw performance out of students or, or trying to recognize where that that's going that, that that's going to be, is trying to determine. Um, I'm sorry, I, I've lost my my train of thought here as we are doing this, um, as we, uh, you know, as we're trying to determine what a student is going to need, I tend to look back on my experiences with other instructors. Mm-hmm. Now, those are both, you know, I have fabulous experiences with instructors and I have really negative experiences with some instructors. Uh, another guy who um, I've had as a, as a, as a real as a significant mentor uh, in teaching, uh, it's a guy named Cecil Birch. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you've had a benefit of training with Cecil before. Yeah. But one of the areas that, that Cecil was most influential uh, for me was that uh, he left students, uh, you know, feeling as though, you know, this was a this was a great experience. I I, I had a lot. I did a lot of training with Cecil uh, years ago, and then I had a gap of time uh, where I didn't have the opportunity to train with him. And uh, but I brought him back for a course with some uh, some other students, people that I trained with. And I remember the, the feedback that I got after the class was, man, I just I just got so much out of that. And these are experienced students. And honestly, when I when I reflect back on what was taught, it wasn't necessarily there, there was nothing earth shattering that was being taught. But the method by which she taught and the way uh, Cecil would make students feel about what they were doing and how they were progressing was very significant. And uh, that type of experience, you know, causes a student to, you know, to delve further. And if we accept that, you know, that that the idea of uh, teaching, coaching, whatever we want to call it, is to improve a student's performance, that's a big component. Right. And and we're at the end of the show, so I like I I need to have you back on so we can talk about this more, but it seems like to me that if sure, you sure. as an instructor or a, a coach or whatever can make uh can take a negative experience for a student and turn it into a net positive overall that maybe that's where the secret sauce is, you know. 
Yeah, that's a, that, that's a true talent. Yeah. <laughs> that's one that I have not uh, not totally cultivated myself. Yeah, I still have issues with that particular one, and and, and an instructor who can do that, uh, you know, is it's a true master of the craft. Yeah, dude, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the show. Um, thanks so much, man. Um, Hey, I'm glad to do it. Yeah. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, no, it really means a lot to me, and I will definitely have you back on soon. So, but uh, be safe, brother, okay? Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you much. You as well, sir. All right. Hey, make sure you check out our website, ballisticradio.com, like our Facebook page, at facebook.com slash ballisticradio. And hey, keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes. It helps us out. Remember, we're on Spotify. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's always be safe. Be safe.